0: And it doesn't mean that it's not difficult to do. And I think that we oftentimes will um, confuse complexity with difficulty. And I don't think that marketing needs to be any more complex.
1: Hello, hello, and welcome to the number one resource to impress your boss and eventually become your boss, the people of digital marketing. On today's episode, we will have Margaret Kelsey on the show. Margaret has spent the last decade building scalable, effective marketing programs and teams for B2B SaaS companies like OpenView, AppQues, and Envision. She now advises founders on how to do the same. She also co-hosts a weekly podcast called Don't Say Content with Devin Bramhall. On this episode, because I had the chance to sit down with one of the best experts on marketing strategy and marketing leadership, that's what we covered. So if you're interested in becoming a CMO, this is definitely an episode for you. We talk about her plunge into solopreneurship, the characteristics of a high-performing marketing team, the pitfalls between a CMO relationship and their CEO, and more. So if you're interested, let's tune in. Hey, Margaret, how are you?
0: I am doing great. It's a little rainy today, but not going to let that get me gloomy. Um... Because it's a uh, summer, summer week. It's feeling good.
1: Yeah, that's that's good to hear. It's like, I think, 104 degrees in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I'm still getting used to it being a New York City boy. But at the end of the day, I just got to roll with the punches. And I'm very, very grateful for having Central IC in my apartment right now. Seriously. But let me not go on a tangent. I like to start these interviews out the same way because I feel like getting the origin story of the guest is very important before we go into any area of your your career and and expertise that you have, I want to get a better understanding of just why did you become a marketer in the first place?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And it was a little bit of a messy route. So I, in college, got my degree in public relations. um, But right after college, got a job at an education startup. Um, It was really for college kids to be able to do like big crash cram courses before, um, before exams. And so I became their head of marketing right out of college a little bit while I was still in college and then outside of college. So I did a little bit of marketing right out of college and then I jumped into some very random jobs. I was a portrait photographer for a few years and then finally made my way back into PR at an agency in Miami where I realized that that's absolutely not what I wanted to do. So I was at that agency in Miami a couple of years after I graduated that um, I was looking for my next role. And um, it was right at the beginning that remote was even a thing. Um, and I found a job posting for Envision uh, and I was able to find somebody that knew somebody that was able to introduce me. And I got a, a soft intro into Clark Valberg, the CEO at the time. So. Um, that was my first kind of foray into, to where I'm at now, which is definitely in this, this niche of B2B SaaS, uh, marketing, but it took me a couple years after college to really land on that.
1: And throughout your career, I noticed that you, you climbed the ladder, so to speak, something that a lot of us are considering as well, but that isn't the default conclusion. And correct me if I'm wrong, will you consider yourself a solopreneur today?
0: Today, yes. Yeah, I I have a business and it's just myself uh, in the business. I have a podcast with a co-host where we are um, kind of exploring other partnership opportunities. But right now, my business, yeah, is just me.
1: What helped you decide to take that leap of faith into starting your own thing?
0: It took a lot of years of building confidence and the fact that I did have a differentiated point of view on marketing and that I did have different Ways of leading and directing teams, um, and so I would take. I would say it took it took several years of me building confidence of managing a team and directing a team and starting to build that strategic muscle to say, "Oh, wow, I really do think that I have something valuable to offer that's outside of maybe um, a normal playbook." Um, and then it was uh, candidly, there was you know some personal things too. I had a baby at the beginning of the pandemic. I worked, you know, without childcare. And uh, came back from maternity leave and, and, you know, the daycares were still closed. And so there was a, a lot of new parenthood and being a working mom that um, got me to the point where I was really just ready to explore uh, the variables and isolate the variables of uh, money made, impact had, and hours worked. And the only way that I knew that I could really isolate those in a way that um, I could play around with what enough felt like for each one of those was to to go off on my own and to build my own business. Since whenever you join a company, you kind of start to lock in how many hours you are going to work or how much money you're going to make. And maybe you can play with impact a little bit. But I wanted to make sure that um, I had all of those variables in front of me. And so the the logical conclusion was to go and start my own business.
1: There's a theme that I, I'm noticing in this podcast where Two key words come up from time to time, impact and intensity. And I bring up these two words because I'm contemplating for my future, whether or not I should become a solopreneur. But I find that there's this challenge on timing because at a certain point, I feel like within the digital marketing space, you kind of need to scrape your knees, get down into the dirt and really have multiple years of doing something before you could become an expert in it however i am seeing some content creators and solopreneurs just get started early on and then document their learning of or their journey of learning excuse me what do you what are your thoughts on timing when it comes to making this transition into solopreneur should someone have multiple years of experience doing the actual craft before getting started or is there an actual path forward where you can just get started now and document as you're going?
0: Yeah, I think it it depends on um, the productized offering, right? If it's an individual contributor type work, productized offering of I'm gonna go do the thing for you. I think it's completely fine to uh, still be learning part of your craft as you're learning that and doing it for multiple clients. If anything, you're gonna see um, patterns across different companies and across different industries or whatever your your target market is. I think especially with B2B SaaS right now and venture um, capital-backed B2B SaaS, I think that there is going to continue to be a push for those marketing teams to actually scale their own programs with external agencies, but specifically solopreneurs, right? If you think about agencies, um, there tends to be larger overhead. There tends to maybe not be the results that companies want because they feel like they're getting full-time hours from that agency, but they're actually kind of getting part-time from a bunch of different people. Um, And I think there's a a unique niche here of solopreneurs that take on maybe two to three clients at a time where there's not a lot of overhead. The companies don't have to pay agency type fees, um, but still have the flexibility to pick up and drop off those folks as it works for their own marketing strategy. And I think as as I see a lot of the tactics and channels change underneath um, marketing teams, I, I think that there's going to continue to be a push in those organizations to really be flexible with how they're resourcing their programs. And I think that there's enough space right now for people to go off and be solopreneurs in a way that maybe even five years, a decade ago, the, there was not enough marketing organizations that were interested in scaling resources with external folks. Um, it's easier than ever now. We're so much more used to a remote working experience from COVID that I think these teams can kind of absorb those resources a little bit more. So, um, yeah, I'm very encouraging of people going off and and, um, making sure that they have enough structure underneath them or support system or safety net, whatever it might be, that they can try it for a little bit. Um, But I, I think that, Industry-wise, uh, we haven't we haven't seen peak of like, hey, there's there's not enough work to go around, especially with solopreneurs, and I think agencies are having a little bit of trouble. But I think solopreneurs is a is an interesting place to be right now.
1: Hey there, if you're enjoying this episode and you're a first-time listener, why not hit the follow button? My goal with each of these episodes is to introduce a new marketing concept or dive deeper into one. So that you can become a better digital marketer hopefully through these episodes you join me on this journey the path to cmo so i'd love it if you subscribed thanks for listening so far before we start dissecting what it means to have a high performing marketing team i feel like this is a great question to ask you there's imposter syndrome that topic has been beaten down and discussed multiple times on many different podcasts, but I'm starting to realize that there are a lot of imposters, like legitimate imposters, copycats. Um, shout out to Emily Kramer. She's always being copied. Her di- diagrams and and posts on LinkedIn, someone's always trying to get credit for her ideas. Um, but I bring this up because I wonder from your perspective, the listeners new to marketing or they gotten like two years in and they're trying to figure out who to learn from what recommendation would you give to them on this sifting through the bs finding the right experts to follow how do they just sort through all the people who are just posting sorting through all the noise to find the right experts
0: yeah i think if you're it depends on what you're trying to get advice for or trying to learn on if you're getting advice and learning something super tactical um I think the best thing to do is to find somebody with enough similarities to the problem that you're solving, right? Like if it's the same company type or the same industry or the same size or the same type of audience, if you're going to learn something tactically and just rip and replace a playbook that somebody else is doing, I would really, really get clear on does that work because it is very similar to what I'm trying to do? Or am I actually in a completely different industry with a completely different target audience that are using completely different channels and shouldn't actually pay attention over here? So that's the skeptical nature, I would say, is not enough marketers say, it depends. This worked for me because of these variables. It will depend on if it works for you. But here you go. Here's advice on the tactical level. And so I get concerned when people just try to rip and replace, like, very tactical information. Um, I think if you zoom up and you think marketing strategy, how do I learn to think more strategically? How do I learn um, how to plan and how to goal plan and things like that? I think making sure that you're learning from somebody who has done it before, who has done it successfully before, and also has the same kind of value system that you do. I continue to go, to go back to this, especially on that like strategic level where I really only want to learn from people that I respect and think that their their share, their decision-making framework is aligned to my values. Um, and so sometimes it's just diving a little bit deeper into their um, content or into, you know, their posts and thinking critically of like, if I was to do that, would I feel good about the type of marketing programs that I'm running? Is this, um, you know, is this aligned to my value system? So When I'm thinking like high-level strategy and like that sort of things, it's very much shared values. And if I'm thinking tactically, it's, is this the right thing for me to even learn tactically based on what I know about my audience and the similarities between what this person is doing at their company versus what I'm doing right now?
1: What are the characteristics of a high-performing marketing team?
0: Yeah, high-performing organizations, they move quickly. They have a high standard of excellence. They have psychological safety amongst one another to be able to share not only what's going well, but specifically what's not going well. Um, and they're very uh, part of that psychological safety provides the ability to communicate really well with one another. Um, so lots of shared language, lots of um probably over-indexing on updates and uh, communication and boundaries and what are you doing versus what am I doing? When are you doing that? When do I need it by? Um, And I think all of those things uh, kind of combined to make sure that that team is high-performing. I think the other part specifically of a marketing organization is they're having fun. Um, I see a lot of organizations that are trying to get to a place of being highly performative Highly performing, not performative, um, that are missing out on that. And I think that you can see it in external marketing when the team is having fun. And I think that creates that emotional resonance with the target audience, even if the the message and the marketing itself isn't overly funny, fun, slapsticky. I think you can really tell when the marketing team is having fun with with what they're doing.
1: There are many, many marketing channels out there that you can use grow your business in 2024 you have social media you have paid advertising you have influencers what have you but podcasting and i might have a bias towards this might be the best marketing channel that your business can use this year to grow but how do you get started well the brand podcast virtual summit is happening this year and if you're looking to launch or grow a podcast this is the virtual conference that you need to attend I was told about this conference from a previous guest on the People Digital Marketing Podcast, Harry Morton, CEO of Lower Street. And in this event, which is free to attend by the way, we will have speakers including Anne Handley, Rand Fishkin, podcast producers from NPR, the BBC, and we will also have AI and automation experts attending too. So if you wanna learn how to grow your business this year in 2024, visit www.brandpodcastsummit.com. Dot com, And if you attend, there's a chance you could win $500 worth of podcast equipment, which is pretty cool. So again, that's www.brandpodcastsummit.com. You say that fun also translates to helping with the performance of internal marketing, other departments actually paying attention.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think that people want, especially at work, Especially, I'm coming from you know the B2B space. So even as we're marketing, we're marketing to people at work or who are thinking about work. Um, People want to smile. They want to have fun. They have want to have a moment of levity. Like you know, work is work. But I think the more that you can bring um, fun and play to it, the more that you're actually going to open up that person's brain to to be open to the message that you're delivering, which is which is marketing's whole job.
1: When it comes to Shared language. Is that similar? Or me, let me take a step back. Is shared language the same as institutional knowledge? Is institutional knowledge a part of shared language?
0: That's a great question. And let me I'm going to be teasing through it live as I'm as I'm talking through it. So bear with me as we we go down this rabbit hole. Um, I think institutional knowledge is feels a little bit more rigid to me in terms of like this is everything that the organization has documented, has, you know, these are like somebody's been there for a while. So they have all this institutional knowledge. I think shared language is something that actually can be picked up pretty quickly. And even if you don't have institutional knowledge, you can still share a language. And what I mean by that is um, organizations that are high-performing usually have some sort of value framework, um, cultural values, brand values that they use as a shared decision-making framework to bring somebody into the organization, right? And in the interview process, they might have a, a grid where they can goal or or um, uh, otherwise score people on how closely aligned to their values are they right and if you bring somebody in with shared values uh, within the organization it's oftentimes that you already have a basis of shared language because you're operating from the same value system um, and then there might be some things some nuances where you need to to define. You know, we talk about CAC here with this definition. I know you maybe have talked about it differently. Or we talk about when we in this organization say PLG, we mean X, Y, Z thing, not necessarily what you mean otherwise. So there is a little bit of work once there is that shared values alignment of, of somebody new coming into the organization, that there's some additional shared language that to your point could be like institutional knowledge of like, hey, this is why we use this term. But I think of it as encompassing of like not just. um not just the words we use and what they mean, but also the way in which we make decisions, right? And I think all of that together can create a really robust
1: shared language where everyone's on the same page. I bring this up because I learned this next question from teeing it up for you, um, based on a webinar that you were on, on Exit 5, where you mentioned, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that the marketing team supports company strategy and product strategy. And you can't really have a good performing marketing team unless both the marketing leader and the team overall understand what the company strategy and product strategy is. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And should be out ahead of it, right? I think that marketing usually is uh, hopefully working ahead of any Business strategy and product strategy changes, so that they're laying the foundation for the target audience and the customer base to be ready for those changes, and and uh, for those changes to not feel overly thrashy or um, or confusing. Um, And so, I think it's a really interesting song and dance for marketing to do, where in fact they need a lot of answers about business strategy and product strategy that, especially in a startup, might not be there yet, or maybe they haven't made those decisions, in order to operate six months ahead of the organization in terms of the the messaging and and the channels and, and the other changes that they would need to do to support the company and product strategy.
1: Because the listeners are most likely not heads of marketing or VP of marketing, they kind of have a, a middleman being that role to understand yeah. both product and company strategy. So for the IC, the entry-level, junior-level marketer, who's trying to get a better understanding of what's the company strategy, what's the product strategy, so they can aid in supporting it ahead of time. Um, What questions should they be asking their boss?
0: Yeah, I would say definitely ask your boss if there's any conversations that they've been privy to that would affect, um, you know, what channels we're going to go after, what what our target audience is. Is that going to change in the future? Are we going after new um you know uh, are we going after the enterprise in the future are we going after um you know more of this like prosumer base um those things can really help and then i think the other thing outside of just asking your direct manager is make sure that you have skip levels on your calendar you can request skip levels from somebody above that um because i'm always listen i was a manager i think i love being a manager i know it's also very difficult as a manager to be that filter of information, to get it from your manager and then understand what to distill down to your team in a way that doesn't overwhelm them, that doesn't scare them, but also make sure that they have the context to make the right decision. Um, I think a really useful thing for an individual contributor to do is to go skip level above their manager and to have those higher level conversations just to make sure that their manager didn't either forget to say something to them or uh, maybe it got caught in a filter where the manager didn't think that that person needed to know or wasn't ready for it. So I think those skip level meetings can be wonderful and can be something that you as an individual contributor can ask for. And it looks really great too to say, hey, I want to be more involved with this company. I want to have more conversations with leaders to make sure that I'm um, operating with with the most context that I can have. Um, And so I think that that is a very, uh, useful thing to get on the calendar and, and most organizations and most leaders would be excited to have it at the right cadence of, you know, whether it's monthly or even quarterly.
1: If you were starting your marketing career this year, what skills you would you be prioritizing to learn? Um, there's a deep sigh.
0: <laughs> I know I, I'm like already exhausted by thinking about yeah. it. Um, yeah. <laughs> The world is changing. Like, I, I feel like I'm getting to that old lady place where I'm like, the world is changing so quickly. I don't know. Um, I think that uh, this overlap of organic social and paid social is a really interesting thing. I think we used to really think of it as two separate things. It was like paid and performance ads over here. And then like organic social strategy sits more on like the, you know, content brand team. Um, I would think if I was starting off just today, I would get really, really good at understanding what message and what content type resonates and which social channels. um and then also how to then boost those um those messages and and that content into uh, highly performing advertisements um so thinking of that overlap of like what works organically versus what works paid and then how do we kind of play in that space would be um would be what i do knowing that that also includes video editing photography um because you're thinking of that kind of multimedia and rich media experience um, so that's lots of things but that's the that's kind of the place in the channels that i would sit in because i think even i'm seeing in in b2b that those social channels are are becoming increasingly important to reach um, to reach audiences.
1: I love examples. Are there two brands in the B2B space that stand out when it comes to social?
0: I'm so bad at this. So I also think the interesting thing that's happening right now is that corporate accounts are actually being deprioritized in social channels and people's accounts are actually the thing that's resonating. Um, And so I think any company that uh, is uh, thinking about that is usually investing in the public personas of um either a subject matter expert at their company or uh, specifically like a founder CEO type so um I caveat used to to uh, consult and work with vendor but um Ryan knew is doing a wonderful job on LinkedIn to be known as um, the person with all of this b2b buying trends data um and so I think that's an example of it's a a company and a brand that is specifically um, uh, optimizing and putting resources against making sure that his personal LinkedIn is growing and that he is known as this figure. And so it's less I, I see less and less of of um, B2B brand Twitter and social media accounts doing really well. And I see more of like these individual people that are starting to build their own um their own brands and then their company brand is like this amalgamation layer against hopefully a bunch of different subject matter experts and people within the organization.
1: This this brings up a concern of mine, probably most likely due to a lack of understanding. I, from what I understand, would say that isn't it kind of a crutch because you start off a startup, especially in B2B, with founder-led sales, but you try to move away from it? But if there's now this rise of founders and executives and and in-house subject matter experts being prioritized on social, isn't that kind of creating a crutch for B2B brands in a way? What do you mean by crutch? Over reliance. Maybe that's that's yeah. the best way to put it.
0: Um, To me, I am very much of the mindset of I don't care how it used to work. OK how does it work today and how is it going to work in the future and so um i'm less interested in thinking about like how does this break the previous mold versus what do i need to do in the future for this to work and so i think this is like the trend is happening i'm i'm like watching it happen and i think the the answer is just, okay, well, how do we change our sales team to make sure that people are coming in through the maybe executives LinkedIn channel and that that social channel is doing a lot of education, even down into the consideration phase. And by the time they want to talk to somebody in sales, it's not the founder. How do we make sure that that experience is congruent and that the expectation is not that they talk to the founder if we're actually scaling our sales team at that point? To me, that's a more like, Yeah, it's just something that we got to solve for to make sure that that brand experience or that sales experience or whatever you want to call it is the right one. Um, But to me, it's not I'm not willing to not follow the trend based on just the fact that we used to have this playbook that used to work. Right. It's like, I don't know. How is how are we going to make sure that this thing works in the future? I'm like very unprecious with the way that things used to work.
1: So, Margaret, this this would be an example of it depends and you just, you just have to test it out and see if it works. And just because other people are saying that you want to move away from founder-led sales as you grow your organization doesn't mean that your organization needs to follow that specific playbook.
0: Yeah, and and founder-led sales means, like, yeah, don't put your – like, it's great to have your founder not in every single sales call. doesn't mean that your founder then can't move to founder-led marketing, right? Like, maybe – like, marketing is sales at scale, right? It's changing hearts and minds and getting that person to – uh, believe in the, your product as a solution to their pain point at scale. So to me, it's a natural progression of actually moving from founder-led sales to let's call it founder-led marketing. Oh my God, All I, there's all so many marketers that just hate the fact that I said founder-led marketing because they're like, get the founder out of my marketing yeah. team too. I'm just like setting them up the chain.
1: So so this is, I, him I love how these segues happen. So I am now struggling with a goal I had in my career probably three years ago, if not two years ago, due to this podcast where I'm starting to see that either openly or maybe not as open, people are complaining about the relationship they have with their CEO, if they're marketing. And I always used to think that when you became CMO, you get respect from the executive team, the whole company respects you, you have all these ideas and everyone just says, yes, here's the money, I have a budget, it's approved, et cetera. But that's not the case. And I wanna talk about, The major pitfalls that arise between that relationship with CMO, VP, head of marketing, and the CEO? What are some of those pitfalls that happen?
0: On which side? I mean, I could be here all day thinking about it from each side. I think that what I see is that founders and CEOs expect their marketing team to be flexible, their marketing leader to be flexible um to really be for, like be be thinking ahead of of what they're doing right now right like a a strategic marketing leader is thinking about that 6 month plan that 1 year plan how the business strategy and the product strategy is going to change it but also be flexible in in terms of if this quarter we have less budget we need to spend less budget and probably have the same amount of impact or more impact right if you're a growing company um the the head of marketing is thinking you don't value me if you don't give me the budget that I've either always had or or maybe even more. Um, and then that founder isn't isn't then giving enough context of of why these budget changes are happening or when in the future what signals they might be able to see in order to reinvest more money in marketing. and so right now on on like in the last couple quarters, that's a big piece of it. It used to be that this relationship was was not great before when there was money flowing. So um, there's also looking back on that in terms of I, there's some issue where I think marketers have shot ourselves in in our own feet by labeling every different thing that we've ever done as a different type of marketing. Right. This is ABM. This is performance marketing. I do social media, but I don't do brand. I do product marketing, but I don't do um, revenue marketing. I don't know. We like have always just put together new types of marketing. And it's very, very confusing because those types of marketing also change from company to company. So you could have done ABM at a previous company, but now it's called demand gen. I don't know. Right. Like, what are we doing? What are we doing? And so I think part of it is we've made it we've made the marketing landscape so confusing that even me as a marketer has to stop people when they say, oh, I do demand gen. And I say, what do you mean by that? Right. Oh, I'm a product marketer. What are you focusing on right now? You multiply that by somebody who's just not thinking about what do these words mean, and they only think about it in terms of I'm talking about founders now. They only think about, well, this is how I have heard it talk about or this is when I Googled it. This is the answer that came up. We're not speaking the same language, right? Like this goes back to shared language and shared understanding. Like marketers and founders are not speaking the same language because marketers have mucked up the language of marketing. And so I think the best thing that we can do to build this relationship back is to come back to this place of a shared language where we really start to inspect what we mean with the words that we're saying. And we really get curious around, Okay, you're telling me that I can't have this budget for this quarter. Can you explain to me how the the um, company is allocating budget and why and what the if it's a VC backed company with a board? What is the board saying? What does the board need to see? When could we reinvest in this program, right? This short-term versus long-term marketing balance of are we building long-term, you know, this long-term big machine or are we building like short-term just leads? What do we need to see in order to build back into the long-term frame? And so I think the more that, that heads of marketing can get curious and prompt their founders to share with them what's really going on. And the more that founders can uh, remember that they they do, in fact, have strategic leaders within marketing that that can handle this type of information, right, um, and the more trust that can get built there, then I think most marketers would be fine to get scrappy for a quarter to, you know, understand how to turn it off and on. Um, but but that shared language needs to be built back up.
1: We tend to make things more complicated than they need to be. And before I ask my last two questions, I want to get your opinion on this Acronym I'm using internally with my team to try and simplify marketing. So I am a a member of Reforge and through my education there, I feel like I've come up with some kind of acronym that helps me better describe what I do, especially to people who have no insight into the marketing team, like engineering, for example. So the marketing team and any marketers in charge of just four things, acquisition, retention, monetization and advocacy and acquisition. I think that's the most straightforward thing people understand, which is just getting new customers, top line revenue, bringing in, um, as much opportunities as possible, sales and limit can also be in there. Then there's retention, which is straightforward, keeping customers so that competitors don't take them away. Um, they don't churn, um, and then there's monetization. So cross selling, -selling, upselling, downselling seeing if there's ways to get them to try new features, even if those features are free, getting them to find more time to value faster. Um, And then there's advocacy, which I kind of like put into its own bucket where it's like, are they giving positive reviews? Are they giving testimonials? Is their word of mouth growing? Are you a part of the conversation? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Would you say that's a great way of simplifying what we do as marketers?
0: Yeah, I actually pull it even back to only two things, which I think we can slot your things in there. Um, because I think even like monetization, people start to again, put their own opinions on it. So I always, I always zoom it up to say marketing is responsible for two things. The first is saturating channels with a consistent message that resonates. So you're always staying top of mind with your audience, right? Um, and with advocacy, we can think of like, you're even using customers yeah. in that
1: they're place ad- right, where that. you can
0: prop it up. So I even would put nah. advocacy up there and that like saturate channels with a message that resonates. Um, And we're not converting even yet. We're like literally just staying top of mind, top of mind, top of mind, hijacking frequency and recency bias. The second part is, can you identify signals of readiness and can you get the person to do the thing that you want them to do? Right. And so this is maybe getting into the product, maybe talking to sales. Maybe it's a customer and you want them to renew. Um, Maybe it's a customer and you want them to try new features. Right. Maybe it's a customer and you want them to buy more, you know, features. And fundamentally, if we're just doing those things like saturating channels with a message that resonates and then identifying signals of readiness and get can, we can convert them to do the thing that you want them to do, those are the skill sets that you need to get good at. And then everything else, if you point it towards monetization, if you point it into product usage, if you point it into advocacy, if you point it into customer marketing, if you point it into AVM, if you point it into the sales enablement, like all of that. Stuff that we have now labeled as putting on top of it. That's, the, I think, the true distillation of the work that marketers do. Um, And I do agree with you, though. I think the advocacy loop is the important one, which is how much of your converting people who are happy can then you use to actually saturate the channels and get more people to even know about you. And that's kind of that flywheel effect of marketing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's important to simplify it as much as possible, because if you can't simplify it, you really don't understand it.
0: And it doesn't mean that it's not difficult to do. And I think that we oftentimes will um, confuse complexity with difficulty. And I don't think that marketing needs to be any more complex, right? Like we have made it too complex of a thing. I think because people tend to think marketing is easy. And so we're like, no, no, it's really hard. Let me call it a bunch of different, confusing, complex things so you understand what I'm like, that my job is difficult. But what we actually need to do is come back to this uh, realization and understanding internally within your organization that changing people's opinions on something is difficult. Changing somebody's opinion so much that they change their behavior is really, really difficult. And that's marketing. That's doing that at scale. Salespeople get to go on one phone call and try to change that one person's point of view and get them to do the one thing. We have to then do that on a whole scalable level so that they're so ready when either they get into the product or they talk to sales that it's that much easier for them. So our jobs are difficult, but we don't need to make it complex, right? The the thing that we're trying to do is actually simple. It's just really hard to do because we're dealing with human beings that are all different and all have different, you know, come from different backgrounds and have different needs and have different pain points at different periods of time and show them differently to us and. Um, it's not to say that marketing is not difficult. It just doesn't need to be complex.
1: When it comes to growing in seniority as a marketer, why is it important to think with longer timelines?
0: Yeah, so this is something I see um, both as really important and really challenging to people. So um, when I... I think a lot of people get caught up in the what is a tactic versus what is a strategy thing. And the easiest way for me to think about it is in terms of, of time horizons, right? It's like if you're thinking out, if you can talk about what you're doing on a year like basis, right? We are trying to saturate all of these channels, right? We're trying to saturate this channel and this channel and this channel because we know that our target audience lives there and, you know, we're doing it with the right message. That to me is strategy, right? Because it's like a long enough time scale. If you're talking about today, I am posting three times on LinkedIn with these different types of content, um, and trying to convert this amount of people like that's tactical. So I think what most people do is that they have a hard time jumping into the longer time horizons, which is strategy. Um, and and marketing, as we talked about, is best when it, it um, nests underneath company strategy and product strategy, but works ahead of it. And so that song and dance of the time horizon in which you're thinking and working is important as you become the leader and you can actually like change marketing strategy to be effective at the correct time horizons. But most people, because also the tactics of marketing are so visible, you can see the LinkedIn post, you can see the whatever, have a harder time to wrap their brains up into the longer time horizons of what we're trying to build or why we're trying to build it. Um, and I even see that not just on the marketer level, but also as marketing leaders start to talk to founders who maybe don't don't have um, uh, a long history of working with strategic marketing leaders. It's the same sort of thing where you have to redirect them up to the right time horizons on, hey, listen, I'm going to I'm going to align with you on our quarterly plan goals, budget resources. But outside of that, I need you to let me run with it. And if I'm on plan and under budget and on track with my goals, you'll be getting a, you know, an update from me rather than needing you to be in copywriting sessions and in the weeds in terms of like the post that's going out today or the whatever it might be. Um, But for me, when I think about time horizons, that's me getting people's brain in the right space to talk about tactics and strategy in a way that actually makes sense in their brains, where we're not, again, speaking the wrong language of me saying, hey, that's a strategy and them thinking about tactics.
1: Does strategy help with shoring up a defense around ad hoc tasks? Because I'm starting to learn this concept about triaging work from different departments. Yep. When you have a concrete strategy that the executive level leaders are aware of, does that help with just reducing, if anything, the number of, hey, we need this posted today kind of work?
0: It does help. But what the secret sneaky unlock is, so your strategy is the long-term, right? It's like in six to 12 months, this is what we're building, right? It's the longest time horizon. The best way to actually get to triage things appropriately and to say no to things is to build your quarterly or monthly, whatever cadence you're at, your goals, and not just the goal of what you're what you are trying to accomplish, but your plan on how to get there and your resources that you need to get there. Most people, when they goal plan, when they set OKRs, when they do all of this kind of stuff, They never actually dive into, and this is the plan on how I'm going to get there, and I need these resources, whether it's internal um, time from different people, whether it's an external resource that you need, you need to hire on a solopreneur to help you out with some some of these things. Once you get the plan and the resources and the alignment there, you are set off to run, and if anything comes up, and it's a better, maybe it's a better option than the plan that you had. It's going to actually be less work and it's going to be more more impact because of maybe we've done it before and we forgot about it and you didn't put it in your plan. Sure. Let's pivot and let's change the plan so that we can do this new shiny object that came up. But if it's not aligned to the plan in which we've already agreed upon, which is set to towards the goal that we're trying to achieve, it's very easy to say not now. Right. Does it align to somebody else's goal? Maybe they can go do it, right? Um, but I think that in terms of like getting the shiny objects off your plate, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it be able to be done without aligning on this is a specific plan for the month or the quarter that aligns to the best probability that we're going to hit this goal. These are the resources that we need to hit it. And anything outside of this thing is
1: not a priority. Margaret, if you had access to a time machine, and could go back into the past about 10 years, doing everything you know today, how would you specifically accelerate the speed of your career?
0: Oh, I don't... I don't care.
1: There you go. That's the answer.
0: Listen, I am very happy that I have the career that I have, and that I'm at the place that I'm at right now. My goal was never growth at all costs of my career. my career was very much built on me finding the next red thread that I was interested in and pulling on that. And I think that level of creativity and exploration and and curiosity in my career made it, made it to, to where it is now, where I really love it. I think if I would have skipped some steps or worked a little faster or done a little whatever... No, I think I wouldn't have I wouldn't have had enough context and enough information to have the career that I have now, which was built on experimentation and curiosity and exploration. Um, So to me, I also am like a little bit allergic of like looking back and like even what I said before about like I, I care less about how the playbooks used to work versus like how do we make this one work based on everything that's changing right now and and the best likelihood that it's future proofed. I will say the thing that I now coach against that I have done wrong repeatedly is that I used to almost wait for permission to have the business impact that I knew I needed to have, but was being blocked for whatever reason internally. You know, like maybe I didn't have the right resource or I didn't have right access to the right person or I didn't have a right context to do it. And I used to sit a little bit back and kind of be like him and ha and be like, oh, it's, you know, stinky that i can't have the business impact that i want to have um and i'm realizing now in my career and in my life and um and particularly now that i see it uh, amongst other marketers um that i would i would have loved to have learned that lesson or have had a mentor tell me that at an earlier stage which is just like go do the thing go have the business impact go make sure you're not being a asshole about it but like go out there and and um hell or high water do the work that you need to for the organization because the organization will be better for it and you will rarely get in trouble for it if anything it will just illuminate the the changes that need to have need to happen organizationally for people to be able to have business impact as well um i think oftentimes we forget especially if you're in the startup world that it's all made up and it like maybe has only been made up with a startup like for a year or two years or three years like it's not this like codified big hierarchical structure that is immovable it's just people who are just trying to figure it out just like you so if you need access to somebody or if you need additional context or if you need some resource to to get your job done um just like go get that thing go just like have the fire in your belly to just have the business impact that you need to have because that's why you work at the company
1: there's that analogy where if you're working on a startup you're building the plane as you're flying it and i always used to think that the person in charge of building the plane was the founder or the co-founders but they hired you for a reason you got to help build a plane even if it's setting up all the chairs and the seatbelts that's your job and you're in charge of it and go and do the thing
0: can be like i really need a seat in order for me to do my job like go build yourself the seat to then yeah exactly the analogy works in that regard too i used to only think about it as as the programs that i'm building or the or the marketing that i'm building less about like the the structure and the organization and the culture and that being a piece of what i'm building too
1: margaret if anyone wants to say hello to you online where can they go to say hi
0: LinkedIn is is the channel that I am most active in, and then will probably um, respond to the most. Um, so I would say that's a great place to to hang out and now chat. Before with me. before you
1: say bye, um, can you pitch your podcast? What's your podcast about?
0: Oh sure, yeah. Podcast is called Don't Say Content. Uh, we will be launching season three the week that inbound is. So I think it's September. Um, so we're taking a little summer break. We just wrapped up season two. We have a lot of fun doing it. My podcast co-host Debbi Bramhall is absolutely wonderful. She used to be the CEO of Animals and and at companies like Help Scout. And we talk just about uh, high level marketing strategy. Um, uh, we don't get into tactics at all, and we also don't have guests, which is a, a kind of a bizarre thing on a podcast. But uh, the two of us really have fun chatting with one another and um, I like to say, come for the banter, stay for the marketing strategy. So um, check us out if you want to um, to level up your own brain on marketing strategy and what um, marketing leaders are talking about.
1: I'll put that podcast and your LinkedIn in the show notes and thanks for your time today. And thanks to you, the listener, for listening to another episode of the People Digital Marketing Podcast. And as always, if this is your first time listening, I just have three simple requests for you. Number one, please subscribe to this podcast if you can. Number two, rate this podcast, ideally four or five stars. And the third thing, the best way for all of us to learn is together. So if you have a coworker in your marketing team who hasn't discovered this podcast, please share it with them. And as always, I hope you have a great week. Thank you. On the next episode of the People Digital Marketing Podcast, episode 143, We will have the head of product marketing at Rudderstack. Rudderstack is definitely a very important part of a startup's tech stack. And we'll be going over how Eric approaches product marketing for such a complicated tool. If you're a product marketer, this is definitely an episode that you want to listen to. And again, if you got up to this point, thanks for listening. See you next week.